So we are continuing in a series called If My People, and uh, it comes from a promise that, um, that God made to King Solomon in Second Chronicles chapter 7 uh, that we'll actually be covering today, but I'll, I'll get into that in a moment. Uh, last week, we started our series with uh, a portion of the story in Chronicles where it tells the nation's history, and it's this moment where um, they had been building the temple for the Lord. Uh, he had been uh, dwelling in a tent for hundreds of years, um, and King David, Solomon's dad, had this burden on his heart that, hey, why do I get to live in this really awesome house and God's out there in a tent? And so, he, um, so his son Solomon ended up uh, carrying on this task of building the temple, uh, and everything was completed, everything was done, and the day came during the Feast of Tabernacles where they're all remembering how God led them through the wilderness and how God had provided and had been there through it all. And Solomon says, bring up the ark. And so they took the ark from Mount Zion and in the city of David and brought it to its new resting place in, uh, in the newly built temple. And in that moment, we saw how God's presence filled the temple like a cloud so much so that the ministers who were there, the Levite priests, they weren't able to do their job because God showed up. God stole the show, folks. He, he, he did that. And, and all of this within the series and within the timing of things, really the heart behind the series is we are wanting to seek the Lord to start off our year together. And that starts by recognizing that God's presence makes all the difference in the world. And it made a difference back then in, in their worship and in their experience with Him. And I believe it will make a difference for us in 2023 as we seek the Lord together, uh, both for our own lives and then for the life of our church and our community. And so uh, that was our first week. And so you can go to the next slide Today, the title for today's message is Prayer, aptly named. Uh, the passage we're going to be looking at is Second Chronicles 7, verses 11 through 22. And the big idea that we're going to be exploring together is that prayer is a means by which we experience God's life-changing grace. Prayer is a means by which we experience God's life-changing changing grace. Let's unpack that kind of idea just briefly before we get into anything else. So you can go to the next slide. Uh, to illustrate this, I want to reference the fact that I'm a guitar player. <clears throat> and that might seem self-evident because I, I just helped on the worship team and I, I was playing. By the way, if you play an instrument, shameless plug, if you play an instrument, we would love to incorporate you into what we do. Um, I didn't even ask Robin about that, but I'm sure it's okay. So anyway, here we go. I'm a guitar player. I've been playing since I was nine years old. I got a, a, a Samic acoustic guitar, um, which is some uh, uh, Eastern off-brand of just 
a guitar. But anyway, that's beside the point. The point is, I've been playing guitar since I was nine years old. I'm 35 now. And um, for me, it comes naturally. Um, but it didn't at first. Let me illustrate. So when it was, I was nine years old at Christmas time, and I was so stinking excited. And, but I knew nothing about guitar. So like, I just literally, for probably a half hour, I just did this. And just, wow, it's amazing. Look at how the, the strings, they do that thing. And then eventually, uh, my dad showed me a few chords and then I was able to play something that sounded kind of nice. And eventually I, I progressed from there to playing lots more complicated things and, and that's good. One of my favorite uh, things though, uh, as a young guitar player was all the, um, the paraphernalia that goes along with guitars. So there was one, there was a t-shirt and it had guitars on the front because it's a guitar shirt and it said, tools of the trade. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's my shirt. So I got that shirt. But uh, this is going somewhere, by the way. So um, one of, I mean, so music, guitar, um, the practice of worship, it is something so deeply ingrained in who I am. Um, and yet, uh, I have a confession to make. I don't play guitar as much as I used to. Um, I know my kids get frustrated at me because I'm so good, but um, like I can just show up on a Sunday and voila, here we go. Um, and that's not to toot my own horn, but like I just, I have that skill, I have that gifting, the Lord's given that to me, but I don't practice as much as I should at all. <laughs> and then not only that, but um, a as a worshiper, as a worship leader, I don't readily just automatically think I need to go spend some time with my guitar and the Lord, and we're going to have some time together. Um, now, where this is all going is that um, things in Angie's and my most recent season kind of came to a head a couple weeks ago, and I was just really, I was anxious, I was frustrated, like things not going my way, circumstances happening, and um, I reached this point, the kids are finally in bed, and I'm just like, I need to play my guitar. And so Angie and I, we, we sat down, she was playing piano, and and got my guitar out, and she let me choose the songs, and I just got to worship the Lord. And it was such a healing moment. Now, things are still frustrating, things are still, circumstances haven't changed a whole lot, our house is not unpacked, and there's all these things. But um, what that all reminds me of is that a tool is only as good as, or as often, as you use that tool. The same, I would submit to you, is true of prayer. Prayer is a means by which we experience God's life-changing grace. And what that means is that prayer is a tool that God has given us to be able to talk with Him and to, to communicate and to connect with Him. 
but prayer is only as good as we use it, as often as we practice it and we employ it in our life as an instrument of, of connecting with God and learning from Him and, and seeking His face and wanting to hear His voice. And so I would submit to you <clears throat> that today, the passage we're about to read, it, it leads us to that truth that we need to pray, not just because we need to talk to God, but because there's something that happens in that time where we are then left changed and transformed and our lives are different after we have prayed and we've genuinely sought the Lord. Uh, similar to, uh, you know, all these songs we've been singing this morning, talking about calling upon the name of the Lord, calling on Jesus' name, offering our lives to Him. And so, there you have it. Um, you can go to the next slide. So, just a little bit of context just to bring us back into this moment. So, everything that leads us up to chapter 7 today, God's temple was completed. They finished the work. All the, the trim was nicely done. All the gold plating was put on there. All the articles of, of furniture were in place. Everything was there. Um, by this point, God's presence had filled the temple already. We talked about that. And then what leads us to this moment is that King Solomon, after all of this has happened, he goes into a very lengthy prayer of dedication, basically saying, God, this is your house, and we ask for you to be here and to, to dwell among us. And so, with that in mind, would you turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 7? I don't know why I'm in the Psalms there. Here we go. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, uh, beginning in verse 11. And you can also follow along on the screen if you'd like. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and his, in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Check. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locust to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, here it is, if my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Hmm, hold on now. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, 
If you will walk before me as David your father walked, according to all that I have commanded you in keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man to rule Israel. But if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from my land that I have given you. And this house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And at this house, which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this disaster on them. So, the first thing I see in this passage is prayer and the humility to look to God. <clears throat> so, God, he appears to Solomon, he responds to this prayer of dedication. He says, I hear you, and I have indeed chosen this house to bear my name for me to dwell here. And it's a funny thing because he, he gives, it's like a compliment sandwich, <laughs> sort of. He gives this, this affirmation saying, yes, this is it. I am here. This is my place. And then he launches into when I shut the heavens, when I command the locusts to come and devour the land, when pestilence comes. And it's a fascinating thing. We don't like to talk about it very much, but the fact that, you know, God is in control and that the fact that He will send devastation into our lives. And it's a hard, hard thing to, to grasp. How can a loving God do that? And we're not going to solve all of that problem today. So I'm sorry. I apologize. We can have uh, coffee or tea sometime and we can hash it out. But um, what's fascinating to me is that God knows his people. He knows what they're like. He had walked with them all those years through um, uh, through the wilderness, and even as they were taking hold of the land, um, and in the years following that, where they really, uh, they were in this vicious cycle of, uh, you know, chasing after other gods, repenting, crying out to the Lord, everything's good, and then going back through it all again. And God knows that these people, they're prone to abandon Him, and that these, these experiences like drought and like having locusts come through and like pestilence of, you know, which is just a general term. It's like all manner of those kinds of things. When those kinds of things happen, we need to pay attention and we need to pause and we need to consider 
God, where are you in this? What are you trying to say? What, what might be going on in my life? And we can know also through Scripture in the book of Job, if you've never read Job, uh, you know, if you're in a Bible reading plan, don't worry, you'll get there soon. Um, but uh, it's a very depressing book. I won't go into all the details, but essentially it, it chronicles the life of this man who the only reason he was going through stuff is because God allowed the devil to put him through the ringer. And, uh, and it wasn't because of anything that Job had done, but it was just that was what he was going through. And so there's kind of those two, two kinds of experiences. So when that happens, what are we supposed to do? Well, God gives us a recipe. He gives us a, a pattern, if you will, or, you know, things that we can do or that we really ought to do in those times when everything's going wrong. What should we do? The first is we need to humble ourselves. Um, that means not being arrogant, not being proud, not saying, God, you know, I'm so great. You're really lucky to have me on my team, on your team. But it's really recognizing He is God, I am not. Recognizing He's in control and I'm not. And obviously, because I'm out, things are out of control in my life, so I need to cry out to somebody beyond myself, something, some, someone beyond myself. And so, it takes a humility. The only problem is we don't like humility. Um, we don't like to be told we're wrong or that we might be in error or that we might need to fix something in, in our situation. Another thing that we need to do in those times is to pray and seek the Lord's face. So at this point, we're not seeking his hand. We're not saying, God, gimme, gimme, gimme. We're just saying, Lord, I need to get right with you. You are God. I am not. I'm seeking your face. I'm not seeking anything else. I'm seeking you. And so then the third, um, as kind of a result of the first two, is then to turn from our wicked ways. And I know it's clearly there in the text. I'm just repeating to you what we've already read. But I think it's important for us to know that these are, are very sacred motions that we walk through in prayer, that we recognize who God is, that we, we humble ourselves before Him, that um, like many of the words that are associated with worship would have it, that we humble ourselves, we lower ourselves, we bow before the Lord, and we'll get into all of that in just a moment. But that's important in that approach that we're not just arrogantly, flagrantly just walking in and saying, here I am, Lord, let me lay it on you. <laughs> um, or like Job a little bit saying like, I want an audience with you. I am righteous. <laughs> this is wrong. I should not be going through this. And, and then God shows up and says all that he says in Job. You should totally read Job sometime. It, you know, with a nice pleasant cup of coffee to help you stay in a good mood. <laughs> Here we go. Here's the point. Um, that 
we need to respond to God when we're in those circumstances in that way. <clears throat> Some of you might be thinking, why is there a picture from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou on the screen? I'm glad you asked, because I was trying to think through um, how do I illustrate this? Because there's, I mean, there's very clear, obvious ways. There's also some more like getting all up in your business kind of ways where I could just say like, here's a very human interrelational uh, inter situation that we could do. But I, I decided I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but what I'm going to do is I'm going to reference Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, which came out 22 years ago and is still one of my favorite movies of all time. And, uh, you know, so they get through the entire movie. There's this guy named Ulysses Everett McGill, um, and he's, he is the definition of proud <laughs> and, and, and sleazy and not good guy. But um, wouldn't you know it, he has a family, and he loves his daughters and his wife, and his wife's rejected him and because he's all these things. And so, and he escapes from... Uh, you know, the jail yard and is trying to get back to them. Well, everything by this point in the movie, we're at the end. Everything is going just fine at this point. He's going to go get the wedding ring so he can get remarried to his wife, yada, yada. And when they arrive at the place, the lawman's there to, to finally, you know, show them their comeuppance and uh, to execute them. So they have the gallows there, and uh, there's the, I, I finally watched it again last night. I'm like, wow, there's so much symbolism in this. But then there's, well, there's some people who are already digging their graves out there, and it's like, wow, crazy. What's fascinating is it's this weird turn of events, and there's, you know, Ulysses McGill, who is one of the proudest men, and he finally, in the face of death, cries out to the Lord. Now, what's fascinating in the movie is that God answers him and brings in this flash flood that happens, and it rescues them, and everything's great in the end. And what's also fascinating about his character is that right after that, God answers the prayer. He's right back to Mr. Proud. Like, well, clearly there's a scientific explanation for this. And it's like, good Lord, man, take the miracle. So here's the point. At some point, we need to be humble before the Lord. And in that place of humility, God will hear us. And so, Prayer, it's a means by which we experience God's life-changing grace, that thing we don't deserve, but that God pours out on our life. McGill, he, he certainly didn't deserve <laughs> a flash flood to rescue him from the lawman um, and, and certain death. But yet, within the context of the movie, he got delivered. And within the context of yours and my life, God has rescued you, and he's rescued me, and that is good news. Now, the next thing I see, you can go to the next slide, <coughs> is prayer and the restoration from repentance. Prayer and the restoration from repentance. So God's response to these actions that his people are supposed to do when they're facing all this kind of trial and tribulation, what they're supposed to do is those things, and this uh, threefold response from God is what we get. 
he says, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will answer from heaven or I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. So that action of hearing, it's the word that's used also in Deuteronomy chapter 6 when um, it's that famous prayer that Jews even today pray called the Shema. That's actually the word, hear, O Israel, Shema, Israel. Um, and the action of hearing within that Jewish thought carries with it both the listening, so hearing audibly, here we go, listen, and then there's also an associated action with that. And so in the context of, you know, the, the prayer for Shema, uh, it's listen and obey. Now, for God, what he's doing is he's going to hear, so listen to what his children are praying, and he's going to respond in, in like fashion. And then also the act of forgiveness, um, you know, covering over their sin, remembering their sin no more because of the sacrifice um, and because they have repented and, and all of that. Then there's this healing that takes place, healing their land. What does that mean? Healing and restoration. So I, I found a picture of these trees. Um, it's actually the same tree, evidently, um, in Jerusalem. And the top picture there, it was taken in 1915 before a locust plague struck Israel. And so then, or, or struck that area at that time, and then post-1915, the bottom picture is what that tree looked like after the locusts had had their way with that tree. And what's interesting to me about all of this is that sometimes we can feel like our lives are a bit like that, that bottom tree. You, are you with me on that? That maybe, you know, life and all its circumstances have just left us empty and bare and exposed and vulnerable and like we have nothing, no, no produce of life to show in our life experience. Um, you know, all these experiences in the world, whether we choose to participate in them or not, they bite and they claw away at us until there's nothing left. And the, the word for healing there is actually to then uh, to restore, to bring back to the place of uh, where it was before the damage had taken place, where so it would be like if I were, I should have done this in all my editing today, I should have done it, but it would be like in this restoration idea that God is saying to his people, he's saying, there's how you were before the locust came, then there's how you were when the locust came and after, and now if you humble yourself and you pray and you seek my face and you repent of your wicked ways and you, you are following after me, then it's like if, the, if we were doing a progression, it would be like, here's the full tree again, leaves and all. And friends, 
I believe God wants to do something new and fresh in your life today and in this season that we're walking through together. That as we pray, as we position ourselves in, in a, a, a place of humility through fasting, <laughs> uh, it, whether that's food or, or something else, that God has promised yes to Israel. Yes, there's a context to who this was originally written to, but God has promised that He is a God of restoration, and He is going to restore you. Now, I don't know what that looks like. That's not a blank check, but what it is, is it's God saying, I will bring healing. I will bring restoration. You will be made new. And that comes as a result of our faith and, and the action of repentance. On the other side of repentance is restoration. And so prayer, it's a means by which we experience God's life-changing grace. And, yeah, within, within the pattern of the story or the passage that we just read from, by this point, the people have done nothing to earn this. It's just a gift. It's them knowing and understanding the character of their God to, to want to be merciful and compassionate towards them and casting themselves on His mercy. I was thinking today, or leading up to today, about how last week we talked about the Ark of the Covenant and um, how that's, that was like the, the literal representation of God's throne on this earth. And there's a phrase in Scripture that says, approaching the throne of grace, that we can boldly approach that throne because of Jesus, because of His blood that covers our sins. And so, even when we've blown it and we've messed up, we can still go to the Lord and we can say, Lord, I've been so foolish. I, I know I chased after those other gods and those other things, and I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And taking on that place of responsibility and that place of humility and saying, God, I know that I missed the mark royally will you please forgive me? And, and, and Scripture tells us that He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins when we confess to Him and we repent. <coughs> so prayer is a means by which we experience God's life-changing grace, as life-changing as it would be if all that, that life and produce were then added back to that tree. You can go to the next slide. The third and, and final thing I see in our passage is prayer and the faithfulness of our God. So it, it's an interesting close to this section <laughs> that uh, God then turns from, here's the nation of Israel, this is all that they have done, and now he's turning, and now you, if you will walk in before me as your father David did, then, you know, I will keep my covenant to David and 
your legacy will continue. We serve and we worship a faithful God who even when we are faithless, He is faithful. And He keeps His promises. He is true. Um, He's never going to let us down. And yet, similar to God's understanding of the people of Israel, knowing that there's going to come a point where He's going to need to pour out consequence on them, He also recognizes in Solomon and in man that there is individually, not just corporately, but individually a way where our hearts are prone to abandon the Lord because of our sin nature. We need Jesus and we need help to follow after Him. And God, He gives Him kind of a recipe, if you will, uh, of this is what it will take for your family line to continue uh, in this royal capacity. You know, uh, walk before me like David did, be a man after God's own heart, you know, keep my commands, uphold my statutes, and it will go well for you. Uh, It's a very similar thing that we see throughout Scripture. It's a very similar recipe for, for life. Um, and yet, God is not only faithful to, to the blessing of people, but also faithful to, to responding to our actions with consequence of saying, okay, if you abandon me, this is what it's going to mean. And so, for the people, if Solomon and the people abandon the Lord, it's going to mean exile. It's going to mean shame. It's going to mean that when people walk by the house of the Lord that currently bears His name, He's chosen it, He set it apart, it currently does that. But if they abandon Him, then it's going to be like a byword. It's going to be a place of ridicule and like, what happened? Oh, well, those people abandoned the Lord. They chose to worship and serve other gods. And so, within this idea of prayer and the faithfulness of our God, God is faithful and He is true and He is just. And He's not going to let the wicked go unpunished. Yet He is gracious and compassionate. And so that's where I love that He he starts with the grace and the compassion saying, hey, if you repent and you turn to me, then I will forgive you, I'll, I'll heal you, I'll, you know, we'll be reconciled and brought back together. But if you don't, then this is the ultimate consequence. <clears throat> and so, prayer is a means by which we experience God's life-changing grace. And yet, if we reject that grace, it, it leaves us barren like that tree. It leaves us in a place of, of emptiness and scorn and brokenness and not as it was supposed to be. Um, and that's because of worship. So I, I have uh, this picture up here on the screen 
Uh, it's a really famous worship image. I'm sure we've had <laughs> it on a few slides at some point uh, during our worship songs. And it's uh, this person who, who takes on this position of kneeling, so humility before the Lord, of raising their hands. I know that some people think this is a Pentecostal thing. It, it's, a, it's a God thing. It's something that the Lord has prescribed to His people. Um, uh, and the action of raising your hands is really to, to point out, like to physically demonstrate, God, you are worthy. You are holy. You are, you are valuable. I recognize who you are. And lifting your hands in that way, it, it signifies, it signals that, you know, I'm not that. And also, I'm placing that value in the Lord. Now, Here's where it gets dangerous and kind of dicey. Sometimes, even without meaning to, we do similar acts of worship for other things or other people, other whatever in our life. And then we take the Lord off the throne in our life, we put him off to the side, and we say, ah, here's this other thing. And so the invitation, I believe, of Second Chronicles 7 is to dethrone whatever idol is in your life. Cast that away. And then allow the Lord to take that place of value and worth in your life. And that is life-changing. If you do something like that, you will not be the same, and you won't regret it. Because by doing just that simple act of submission and yielding to the Lord above all, that will put the rest of your life in order. That doesn't mean that everything's going to be sunshine and rainbows and, you know, all of that. But what it does mean is that you will be entering into the good that God has for your life, even if that's hard, even if that's a challenge. And all of this is only possible because of God's grace, because God makes a provision like in Second Chronicles to say, this happens, I want you to do this. This is how I want you to respond because this is going to be the best thing for you. And if you do that, then you will come out the other side and you will come out better than before. Now, I don't know what all of you are going through. Um, and, and that's okay. We're still getting to know each other. But I do believe that God wants to do something great in your life. And I would ask you to seek his face in the next coming, well, today for sure, but, you know, in the coming weeks, and to see what he'll do if you surrender that to him. Let's pray.